Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online, online. with Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander. Hi everyone, yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill and you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, the Keysport. 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle, 1620 AM, Huntingdon, Mixtape Radio International, Steel FM, Radio 99.1 FM, Rehoboth, Delaware, Orca Radio in Owensboro, Kentucky, and streaming on italknet.com and also on pghtalkradio.com. Well, welcome to the program today. Glad you could join us. And our guest this evening, just so I can preface this before we get in, she is not related to me. Same last name, but no relation whatsoever. <laughs> On the phone line right Hi. now, we have Carrie Alexander. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm in sunny Florida, so I don't have any complaints right now. Oh, lucky you. Lucky you. Yes, lucky me. But I have to say a big shout out to my people in Kentucky. I, I heard that you uh, reached the people in Owensboro, Kentucky. Yes. I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, oh. That's where I went to college, and that's where I had my first broadcasting job. So um, that's where all my family, uh, you know, still resides. So I have a big heart for that area. Well, I'm I'm glad. I didn't realize that that you were from uh, this the wonderful state of Kentucky. So you are doing a podcast now called Carry the Light. Can you explain to me what that is all about? Well, you know, it's so interesting that we started off with a, you know, hey, I'm from Kentucky kind of thing, because honestly, Carry the Light is about um, shedding light into the world. It is chasing away darkness, and I want to illuminate all those wonderful people out there in the world who are doing such great things. And there's so many more of those people than there are that are doing bad out there. Right. And then also inspire people to maybe, you know, get an idea of, of what, how they can use their time or talent or something simple they could do to make this world a better place. Because we all have power and we all have impact. And that all comes from my upbringing in Kentucky. I grew up in a very, very small in Kentucky called Battletown. And it was very rural. And so we all took care of one another. It didn't have to be verbalized. didn't have to be asked. You just stepped up and helped out whenever somebody needed something and vice versa. 
So that's how I was raised to be, and that's how I thought the world was. And then I got out there, and I saw, well, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time. You know, people are inherently good, and there are some amazing work being done out there. And I just wanted to share their story. Well, that is great. Now, can you give our audience a little bit of background of who you are? <laughs> sure. That can be complicated. I, I, no, um, I love asking that question. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm a small town girl who's lived a very big life. Uh, I've been very fortunate to, um, um, I was one of the very few people um, around my area to go to college. Um, I went to the University of Kentucky, go Cats. Um, but from that, I met a mentor by the name of David Dick, who was a CBS Emmy Award winning journalist. And um, I have always loved uh, getting to know people and storytelling. And um, so I got into journalism. And uh, from there, I got to take jobs all across the United States of America. I have friends all across the state. And then I also got a chance to live, you know, these little microcosms of cultural, um, you know, beliefs and systems okay. and ways of life. And it was just fantastic. So, um, and I've interviewed everything from serial killers to presidents and prime ministers. And I've covered disaster relief and uh, projects. And I've covered, you know, bombings. And um, so I've seen humanity at its worst and I've seen it at its best. And I will tell you, there's a whole lot more best than there is worse. Now, when we, when we talk about that, because um, myself being in the, uh, in the field, not as much as I used to be, because I used to work radio full time, oh, a long time ago before I went into my new line of work, which now I'm an educator. And um, with that being said, one thing we were always told is the reason we see the news stories we see today is because that's what sells violence and blood. If it mm -hmm. bleeds, it leads. And that's mm -hmm. what sells. So that's why we don't see the positive feel good stories. So with mm -hmm. your podcast, that's what you're focusing on, right? Just the feel good stories that are going on throughout the country and maybe throughout the world. Correct. Well, it's not just feel good. It's, it's like, Wow, look what it may be, you know, like I just interviewed a woman the other day named Rachel Faulkner Brown. Well, she um, lost two husbands tragically before like the age of 30. Oh, wow. And then her third husband suffered from severe depression. You know, one of her husbands died in a plane crash and he was a pilot. And one just dropped dead at the age of, you know, like before the age 30 on a basketball court. And and so she's had a heck of a journey, but now she uses her journey as a as like a toolbox for helping other people and how she lifts them up. And she has this like incredible, she says, you know, her, her past is someone's worst nightmare, but her presence, her present is, you know, living joyfully and fully. And so I've met so many of these people who have come to the brink of themselves um, and then found an amazing, fulfilling life, a real passion, a real purpose. And then I've also, you know, found people who have, you know, done amazing things to help other people. So some are feel good and some are just like these amazing group tragedies, but with a wonderful ending okay. uh, to them that comes full, full circle. 
so when whenever you whenever you look at these, you're looking at these, and I guess we could use the word inspirational, where people who have gone mm-hmm. through trials and tribulations are able to to still see the positive that goes on in the world and keep moving forward. What made you want to tell these stories to a large audience? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. Um, one is, you know, my background, like I said, the experiences that I had, um, how I grew up, things that I saw. Number two, as you talk about being an educator, one of the things I do is I train kids on how to help other people, uh, really with a focus on natural disaster relief. But we do a little bit of everything. We look at the problems in the world and we're like, okay, how can we make this better? We may not be able to solve the you know, whole problem, but how can we make it better? And brainstorming with kids is fantastic because they don't have the normal boundaries that adults right. do and they're not yet, you know? So um, we they do the most extraordinary things at such a young age. And I think if they can see how empowered they are, to help other people at age nine, imagine what they'll do at 30. Mm-hmm. And so when they inspire me continuously and they've inspired their parents and other adults. And so I was like, you know what? Sometimes, and, and I also did a huge project for the uh, Boston bombing uh, victims. It was called the America for uh, Boston Prayer Canvas. And I can tell you more about that story, but it was incredibly powerful, the experience I had through that. And I found that everybody, most everybody I've met wants to do something. They just don't know what to do or how to approach it. And they may not have money to donate or they may, may you know, want to do something hands-on. It's just they're, they're not sure what to do. And so I thought, you know what? If people hear these stories, they might be inspired to pull themselves out of a bad place that they may be right now or lift a helping hand to someone else. Or see, I have power and I have an essence I'm going to leave behind on this planet. What is it going to be and how am I going to do it? Um, So that is why I wanted to share their stories. So just listening to you, you sound like a very positive and upbeat person. I try to be. I I would think my friends would tell you that. I think the pandemic plays with everybody a little bit. (laughs) Yes, I always try. Yeah. I, I, that was quite the exercise um, and continues to be so. But um, I really, really try to be because you know what? You get one go around on this planet. And so every every second that takes by, you don't get it back. And so now that's a constant exercise for me of gratitude and of Thanksgiving. Um, but it's also like, okay, what do I tell my kids all the time? Like, okay, what does complaining get you? Um, nothing. So you got to figure it out. Now, all of us need to vent from time to time, and that's okay. You do that. But then, you know, get to work. You know, get to action. Every successful person I've ever met in any field or any way of life, it comes from hard work, diligence, and problem solving. And so I believe it's the same thing. You know, you've got to practice that, you know, strengthen that muscle every day. For me, um, prayer is a huge point in my life. That's my, quote, coping mechanism is to give it up to God. And guess what? That unburdens me quite a bit. So um, it helps keep me in a more positive-minded place. So with how long has the podcast been on? Uh, let's see. I started it in the fall because my natural inclination, one of the things that bugged me the most about the pandemic, which there's a lot of things, uh-huh. but is that it, it limited, or so I first thought, my ability to help other people, because I, I, I try to get out there and I try to be as hands-on as possible. 
And when I saw people starting to really sink into depression and feel isolated, and I kept hearing the stories over and over, I did projects where we made prayer cases, where we made pillowcases with positive messages for oh, okay. COVID patients uh, and things like that. And we made hand sanitizer for the homeless and, you know, did food and things like that. But um, the podcast, I was like, you know what, let's, let's get out there and we, let's start connecting people who are making an incredible impact on this planet and let's, let's shed some light on them and, you know, take away the darkness with light instead of darkness with darkness. And I also didn't like seeing the country becoming so divided and so much hate seemed to be kind of rising. And we weren't looking for our common unity right. community anymore. And we were focusing on how we were different when we all have something where we're alike. So if you find that common ground, a lot of other things fall into place, including respect and kindness. And so I wanted to try to promote that and bring us back together instead of continuing to watch the media where it was just more fractionized. I mean, everybody was um, split or, you know, I see a lot of the newscasters like basically yelling on a set every day. And I think, gosh, that's going to be an exhausting job. (laughs) But keeping people spun up and, and that was seeing families even getting torn apart and i thought well wait a minute let's let's back up let's look at big picture here and let's let's take take a moment let's let's look at this and so um so anyway i just wanted to show all the positivity so if you don't mind me asking what year did you graduate from college i graduated from the university of kentucky in 1995 okay because the reason... So I'm, you know, 28. What's that? <laughs> so I'm the right age of 28. Well, I, I was going to say, you, you, then you must be like, you must have went when you were three. Um, cause... Yes, yes, I was a prodigy, for sure. Because the picture on your website, you don't look that old, just to let you know. Um, but the reason I asked that... Fighting. The reason I asked that question is because in 1995, after graduating, because I graduated... Um, actually only a few years before you get, I graduated from college in 88 with my degree in uh, broadcasting. And looking at that period of time, it is much different than it is now. There wasn't, there, there wasn't that, 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 the, uh, as you said it, the left, the right, the fighting, the, uh, the, the country being torn apart, everything seemed to be much calmer and when you got out of school and started broadcasting you were really just telling stories if you would have graduated two years ago do you think the the, your approach to what you're doing now would be totally different (laughs) oh um absolutely a hundred percent i actually did a podcast with sam rather talking about this exact same thing Dan rather is a friend and mentor of mine and we talked about how uh, journalism has changed yeah and with that the impact that it's had because you know when i was in journalism uh first of all my main goal was to be impartial from every how i inflected my voice to how i presented something i wanted to make sure i had you know good sources i was being fair and balanced and really meant that and um and i kept my own personal beliefs out of it because that was not my job my job was to give the facts and then you decide where you land on it 
And I felt that that was a really important job. It, it helped keep, um, you know, government in line. It, it helped inform the, the, the public. It, you know, and I just really saw that as an incredible service. And then I remember watching the shift happen. And uh, for me, um, I started seeing the shift happen when uh, Anna Nicole Smith, I remember looking at her funeral uh, profession uh-huh. and they they covered that forever they had those those cameras on and i started seeing that and then from there it just it just kept going and then it became now it's more shock journalism uh more like infotainment but people take it as face value and so depending where you're getting your news it's slanted, so you can watch one place and then you can watch another place. Right. And but you have to. I watch a multitude of uh, journalists now, and I read three papers a day, and I often do my own research if I question something. But a lot of people don't have the time or the inclination to do that, and they trust people that they're giving them facts. And I think that is real abuse of power because when you don't you know, make it clear that you're not just giving the news, that you're you're intertwining an opinion to it. I think it's very unfair for those out there and how they receive the information. So yes, I mean there was this whole journalistic integrity thing that we we tried so hard to abide by. And um I remember one of my jobs in California that I had, I got into it with the news director because he wanted me to cover. He had decided that there was a salacious store opening in this neighborhood in California that was known to be more, you know, conservative. Okay. And so he sent me there, and it wasn't at all what he thought it was, but he wanted me to still paint it that way, and I refused to do it. So, um, yeah, there's, there's been definitely a big switch from Edward R. Murrow days. Well, the interesting thing is you said when Anna Nicole Smith died, which was 2007, I see Mm -hmm. the shift happening before that when O.J. Simpson, because that's when we went Mm -hmm. on the 24-hour news cycle. And Mm -hmm. we needed to make, and I hate to use this term, but I will, but we needed to make up news to make people keep watching. And that's when I started to see the shift change. And then whenever 9-11 came into play, it actually started to pit us against them. And you started mm-hmm. to have these uh, these um, talk show hosts, these anchors, whatever you want to call them, where they became prominent and they were the opinion makers. I think whenever you gave a so-called, and I'm using the word so-called in quotes, journalist, the ability to make an opinion, even though they're not a journalist but were looked as one, that is when things change because, like you said, you're looking at three cable news networks now where that is not news. That is infotainment. No. And these people do yeah. not have a background in doing this because their background mm-hmm. is more of an entertainment or maybe even politics, but they don't have mm-hmm. the ethics that we would have if going to a four-year university. Because remember, for us to get on the air anywhere, we had, a four, had, had to have a four-year degree in our back pocket. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that made the shift, too, is once things, the news cycle moved a lot faster. Like you talked about the 24-hour news cycle, but then you also had live. You yes. Know, so you could, 
you had to move. So you had to go live at five o'clock. So you had to have your story in, you had to have it done, you know. And so then people started foregoing, you know, several sources. If they had one source, they just go with it. And knowing that the retraction, nobody, who no, reads the retraction? Not like at all. in the newspaper. Yeah. And, and who reads it, you know, with, you know, it's so they're just like, okay, I want to be first. I got to be first. I got to have it first. So they didn't care if it was right. It's just got to be first. And that that was a real disservice as well because um, you didn't gather all the information. You didn't look at both sides of the issue. You were just the first one to get it up. And that's a real problem when you don't take a beat to figure it out, especially, again, you have a lot of power because you are disseminating your information to thousands or millions of people and they may not get any more information on that topic from anyone else but you that day. So um, I took it very seriously. And I still to this day, and Dan Rather wrote an amazing book. It's called What Unites Us. And um, he's fascinating to talk to anyway because he's like a walking history book. If, if you'd um, like, I'll but, give you my phone number. You can have him get in touch with me because I would love to. Um, cause, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's amazing. Individual. Um, and, and I hate to say it, but I literally grew up watching him on the and the CBS Nightly News. Um, the other thing is too is how do you feel social media is playing into this? You know, uh, for someone again, you know, journalists we believe in freedom of um, you know the press, freedom of uh, you know freedom of speech, of expression, things of that uh, nature. What I don't there's a few things I don't like. I don't like not having any accountability. I don't like that people can be anonymous and say awful things or make outlandish accusations. And then it just runs with that. It's true. Right. Um, you, know, if you can't put your name to it. If you can't say it to my face, you shouldn't say it at all. And so I have a real problem with people getting on there. I think it's very cowardly and irresponsible to do things like that. Um, and then also state things that you're not sure about is true. And so that's another real problem because now you have a lot of people on who are presenting their information as in, you know, well vetted, well thought out, and it's not, and they, they look to be journalists, but they're not. And there's a real difference there. You know, they don't follow the same governors as a, a true journalist in the, in the traditional form of a journalist would be. And I'm not saying everyone, you can never say everyone right. at all times. But I'm just saying it definitely has an impact, and it has certainly had an impact on how divided our country has become. And a lot of it has been on false, false information um, that has been, you know, spread and hyped. And um, that, that's really sad to me. It's really, really sad um, when things like that occur, and it didn't have to. And it's all irresponsibility. And again, I, I think when people don't stand behind what they're saying it's a real issue the the one thing that frustrates me about social media itself is that when you and i were in the working in the industry or before when we went to school the people we were taught to trust were our parents our teachers and whoever you saw on the news on tv or on radio because that's mm -hmm. just the way it was, and then clergy and so on and so forth. There was a very small circle that we were taught to trust. Then, when social media came into play, these people became influencers, 
and they're telling things that aren't true and people are believing them. If I tell a lie three times and I tell it over and over again, eventually someone's going to believe me and then they're going to start spreading it. And I think that's why mm -hmm. journalism and the news media today has such a negative connotation to it because people, if they don't like the facts, they're going to say that it's not real. And that's where we run into this problem going, where are we getting information from and who do we trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard for people to discern that. Who can I trust? Who who am I being misled from? And then you're, you're hearing different things in all different angles. And you know, the other thing with social media, too, I mean, just when I think, you know, when yeah, when I was growing up, you know, we had one telephone in our house and we had one TV and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. And so I wasn't, it, I wasn't inundated with negative messages either. And I even thought about like when I was in high school, if any girl would have disliked me or whatever, they couldn't come hound me at home. Right. You know, they only had me after yeah. school. I had some yeah. time off, you know, but, but now I think, oh my gosh, if, it, if, I, if I was in the same situation now, there is no telling what they could post or say or where would my self-worth, mm -hmm. you know, how much of it would be tied up into that. And so I just think there's there's a lot of unintended consequences that came from social media. Now, on the good side, I do a lot of natural disaster relief, and it's a great way to let people know I need volunteers and here's what I need help with. Um, but when it gets abused, it's it's frightening, utterly frightening frightening of how it connects everyone but in what ways is it connecting us now you, um, and that's that you made the comment you had one tv in the house and we all had a quarter mm -hmm. telephone which meant mom mm -hmm. and dad knew what we were doing at all times because if we watch tv they were usually in the room with us so if we mm -hmm. watched the news they were able to explain to us what we were seeing unlike today mm -hmm. where every kid has their own device have their own, I mean, just what they have is amazing because I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 26 years old and all you could do on that was make telephone calls. You couldn't even text <laughs> when I got my first right. one and I was paying an arm and a leg for the service. But when we gave them to them as young as five years old that are getting smartphones, and I hate mm -hmm. to say this, to keep these kids busy... We have not taught them how to responsibly use the technology. And I think that's where oh, we're getting sure. into the trouble at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, it can be, you know, almost like, and, and think about, they haven't developed, I mean, their brain hasn't even developed the ability to do like self-regulation, I mean, certain discernment, there's certain things that their brain physically is just not there yet. But they're on this, and as we know, a lot of these things, uh, triggers the addictive portion of our brain and so they start identifying with that and then it, and then they start exploring the internet and you can have all the safeguards you want on them right but these kids are super smart and they know how to get around it so it's almost like you're giving them a loaded gun to play with yes because there's a good chance okay fine the safety was on and and they didn't get hurt but then there's a chance they hit the right button it drops it falls it's accidental but somebody gets hurt. Right. And so um, there, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It is something that I think we're going to have to deal with, with this generation pretty soon. Um, because what did we do with a whole generation of kids 
what are their coping mechanisms? Mm-hmm. What are their responsibility? What are, where is their truth finding? Are they doing any real research or are they just, you know, looking for answers uh, with, you know, blogs and YouTube, you know, kind of thing. And some of that stuff is incredibly helpful and insightful and educational, uh, but some is not. And right. uh, how do they know the difference? You know, I mean, it's, it, it's tough. It's really tough as a parent, for sure. So, Carrie, I know you have a tight schedule today, and I appreciate you being with me, but I need to have you back on again so we can discuss this in uh, more depth because uh, I've done it with other people that have worked in the field, and it's very interesting to hear what their um, their their per- point is or their perspective on what's happening and how we can possibly fix it. But before I let you go, is there anything you want to say about your website, your podcast, and how we can get more people involved in what you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, actually, I have a contest going on right now for the Illuminator Award, and that is where I'm showcasing uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, which is a lot of what my podcast is about. So people can start uh, tuning in and listening, hearing their stories, and go on my website, carrythelight.com, which is K-A-R-I, thelight.com, and vote for their favorites. Uh, in the month of March. But in the meantime, like I said, I've got interviews with Dan Rather, Annika Sorenstam, um, uh, Chris Jericho, um, lots of different people looking at the positive side of life, uh, positive side of life. And I hope that the stories that I have on there are inspirational for people and give some ideas of how they can help others. And you can also go on my website as well. And I have links to different organizations that they, they might want to participate uh, with as well. So, uh, thank you. And my podcast is on Spotify or, you know, Apple. So please feel free to tune in and listen. Well, Carrie, thank you very much. And you have an excellent day and hopefully we'll talk again to you in the future. Thank you so much. You too. Uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you. And thanks again to Carrie Alexander. Like I said, no relation (laughs) from her website, Carry the Light, that's K-A-R-I, the light, dot com. And uh, positive stories and emotional stories of people just like you. And I think that's very important for us to get out to the audience that you guys understand that we're not going through this alone, that there's people like that and like us out there. So hopefully we can have Carrie back on the program to talk a little bit more about what she's doing and how the podcast is going and a little bit more talk about media because you know I love talking about media. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. Need to replace your Social Security card? In most states, you can request one online with a My Social Security account. A My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal earnings history and benefit status. 
You can also get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Hey, Sean Casey here, former WORFM DJ. And you're listening to Online with Bill Alexander. Tonight on the telephone, we have an interview with an author by the name of Timothy Caulfield. He wrote a book called Your Day, Your Way, The Fact and Fiction Behind Your Daily Decisions. Now, I I think the book is really interesting, especially when the first line of the book goes, you're going to feel pretty bad if your son dies. You're going to feel horrible. Tim, where did that line come from? (laughs) That is a line. It's a true story. Uh, Having dinner with the whole extended family, and I announced that I'm going to go skydiving, which no one really cares about. No one cares if Uncle Tim falls to his death. But I said that I was going to take my 14-year-old son with me, which was just the cutoff for skydiving. Uh, and uh, everyone thought I was crazy. And I use it as a way to explore how bad we are, all of us, okay. at perceiving risk. And, it's, and then the, the book takes off from there, as you know. And, and the, the gimmick of the book is it takes place over a typical day, you know, the kind of decisions that we make all day long. And I look at what the evidence says about all those decisions about when to wake up, should you drink coffee, you know, even getting dressed, having breakfast, and on and on I go until you go to bed at night. And I've been, because I've been studying misinformation and decision making for, for decades. It's what I do as a, as an academic. And I thought this would be an interesting way, a sort of a relatable way to look at all of the forces that shape our decision-making. I think it's interesting because I don't think um, people really think about their daily decisions as something that may impact their life further down the road. And when I started reading this, I'm going, I never thought of that before. Not that I don't make decisions daily, but what impact they may have years down the line. And I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at it because if I drink coffee today, how is that going to affect me in a month? How is that going to affect me in the year? Is it going to worsen my health? Is it going to make me better? How is it going to work? And again, I think that concept is really interesting. That It's like that, that idea of a leaf falling in a pond, the ripple effect that falls out from there. Well, it is, it is interesting. And we live in a time when the information environment is so incredibly chaotic. And one of the big themes in the book is that chaotic information environment is stressing us out, you know, about how the kind of decisions we make. And think about what's happening in a pandemic, oh, yeah. right? All, the, the, all of this misinformation that is permeating our lives, it, it does stress us out. And, and you're right. Uh, the, the decisions we make can have consequences or not, Bill, because some of the, the decisions we make are based on fear-mongering, you know, or, or they're based on our misperception mm-hmm. of risk. And so we may worry too much about a particular decision, and not enough about about another one. And look, the book isn't meant to you know tell people how they're supposed to live their lives and tell people this is the decision you make. Kind of almost on the contrary, it really is to say, you know, here are the forces that shape the decisions that all of us make, and here's what the evidence says about those particular decisions. And as you know, I try to have a lot of fun right. throughout the book. You know, I, I take some topics that aren't so serious, like toilet seat up, toilet <laughs> seat down, or 
and then and other decisions that are a little bit more consequential and, and relevant to our our decisions as as you know as employees you know as, as bosses as parents um and even as someone just trying to take care of ourselves you know trying to live a healthy life when when you talk about those decisions the minor ones like you said toilet seat up toilet seat down uh toilet paper flap over or under and like that, a lot of those decisions that we make, we don't think about them because either we were taught to do it that way or it just become it just becomes habit. Because I know the whole idea of the toilet seat up and down. Whenever you're a bachelor, you don't worry about it. But when you get married, then you get trained to do it the right way, because if not, you hear about it at two thirty in the morning. And again, it's those decisions that after a while, you don't even think about them. Well, well, it's interesting. The toilet seat up and toilet seat. So, yeah, as you know, in the book, I cover a whole bunch of different topics, and that one generated so much debate. And you know, people arguing with me in the hallway, and you know, <laughs> uh, at work. You know, people really feel passionate about toilet seat up, toilet seat down. And Bill, believe it or not, there's actually research on this. Oh, I believe it. You know, mathematicians thought this would be a fun thing to do some mathematical modeling on. And so there have actually been people who have taken it relatively serious to try to decide, you know, should you leave it up or should you put it down? And, um, you know, the, I, the answer <laughs> is that most people from a strictly objective sort of modeling perspective err on the side of what's called the one-touch procedure. You know, you, yeah, everyone has an obligation to touch it once, so if it's up, you put it down, if it's down, uh, you, you put it up. Okay. Uh, but I'll tell you something. <laughs> that, that doesn't, in, you know, uh, factor in what your partner might think about it, and it also is, in fact, factor in, you know, now the toilet plume, as they call it, so you want to put the lid down. Right. But anyway, that's a really good decision about how, a good example of how there is evidence out there that, that people might be surprised about. Now, the other thing you talk about, too, is misinformation. And we, we've we been dealing with, I think, more misinformation in the last decade or so, not because of traditional news media, but because of social media. Because anybody can put anything out there and people will believe it. Same thing with anybody can put um, write a blog, they can do a podcast, they can do whatever it may be. And if enough people start to believe it, they start pushing around that misinformation. And with that happening, we've seen what has happened just this past year with mask on or no mask. And it's interesting to me that there's still some people that are so stringent in their beliefs that they're not you're you're not able to give them information to make them sway either way because they believe their way is right and there's no other way that's going to uh change them well this is actually the area where we do most of our research myself and our research team at the uh, at the institute in fact we have a grant uh, on that exact topic right now and you're you're right you're right the misinformation around and i've been studying misinformation as i said for decades for decades and i've never seen anything like what we have right now misinformation is absolutely everywhere <clears throat> and it and it really is having an impact on how we are responding as individuals and as a society to the pandemic. And, and, and something that you raised, excuse me, <coughs> something that you raised right there is ex- very relevant. And this is the, the uh, use of ideology um, to shape our decision-making. And what's happened, and I think there's a good evidence to back this up, is that increasingly bits of misinformation – 
have now become ideological flags. And once that happens, you know, studies tell us it becomes more difficult to change an individual's mind. So what do I mean by that? Um, Wearing masks or hydroxychloroquine doesn't become an issue of, of evidence in science. It becomes an issue of, of ideology. You know, be it a mask or no mask becomes an ideological flag. Believing that uh, hydroxychloroquine is effective becomes an ideological right. flag. And, and unfortunately, once that happens, it becomes increasingly difficult to change people's minds. So what we need to do, and I talk about this in the book, is get to, be, get to the misinformation, correct the misinformation, before before that happens, and so it really is a call to, to counter misinformation uh, as soon as 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 it emerges. Look, people, twenty eight percent of Americans believe that Bill Gates uh, yeah. started the pandemic in order to put microchips in us, and that's a pretty hardcore conspiracy right. theory. But it's partly it's because now it's become part of an ideological package, and um, yeah, so it really highlights how incredibly important it is to take misinformation seriously. But do people realize how ridiculous that sounds because they they say that they want to track them? Well, guys, you're carrying cell phones around. Yeah, they have GPS in them. Computer in your pocket. They're tracking you already. I mean, they're not going to put anything in you. The other thing is, too, and now, and I'm going back to when I was in college. I'm, I'm a communication graduate because we had to do that before you got into radio. You had to have a bachelor's degree in communications unlike today, where anybody can do it. And one of my professors told me that as individuals, we cannot change someone's mind. We can give them information for them to change it, but we cannot physically do it. But what I'm noticing in 2020 and 2021, people don't want to listen to other people's facts because they feel they're right through and through. And they will tell you, no matter what you say, you can tell me the sky is blue, and I'll still tell you that it's aquamarine, and I'll still argue that point until you get tired of arguing with me or we're just done talking to each other. And that's what I don't understand how societies change that much, because not, we're not willing to be tolerant with each other. We just want to be right in the heck with everything else. Well, there's a whole bunch going on there, Bill. <laughs> you know, part of it... Uh... Part of it is the reality. You know, there's evidence to back up that the good news, let's start with the good news. The good news is if you look at the body of evidence, debunking, as I often call it, countering misinformation does work. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? Yeah, I mean if you measure it on a population level. As you just pointed out, it's very hard to change the minds of the individual standing in front. I mean, how often does that happen? You know, where you, you argue with someone and they go, you know what, now that you mention it, you're right. I mean, that never, that never happens. And and it's particularly so when there are individuals that are hardcore deniers, right? Hard, the yes. hardcore deniers, it's incredibly difficult to change their minds. And, and so rule number one of debunking is don't waste your energy on the hardcore deniers. Always think of the general public as your audience. So that general public might actually be the general public if you have the opportunity to have that kind of audience. Or it might be your family. It might be, you know, your friends. It's very difficult to change the mind of, of, the, of the hardcore denier. But the other problem is, as you highlight, and this goes back to my comment about ideology, is, is you're increasingly getting these communities, and often the communities are built around social media, and they talk to each other, right? So you have, you're amplifying that confirmation bias, you're amplifying that echo chamber, and it becomes very difficult uh, to change the minds of those individuals in that community. One of the ways you hopefully can do it is to engage the entire community, but even that, that can be 
you know, extremely difficult. So you're right. We're, we're living in this world, chaotic information environment. Social media has amplified the echo chamber effect, incredibly polarized. But still, still, I believe that, you know, if you counter misinformation appropriately, if you teach critical thinking, we can make a difference. And, and there is some evidence that, that that will work. I, I always like to think of it as the movable middle. You know, you have those hardcore deniers, Bill, you know, on one end of the spectrum, whether you're talking about vaccines, whether you're talking about GMOs, whether you're talking about whatever, right? You have that, those, those really hardcore deniers on, on, on one end. Uh, but the rest of the individuals are, are, you know, the movable middle, you know, and, and if you can get good, credible information to that community, I think you can make a difference. Now, one thing you talk about in your book about how different times of the day affects decision making. Does that also take also come into play whenever we're receiving information that if I receive it in the morning, I'm more open to it than if I would receive it in the afternoon? Yeah, there there is a decision fatigue, and I think everyone can probably relate to this. <laughs> With a, a, a decision fatigue, you know, the more decisions we make, the more difficult it becomes, especially if the if the decisions are are quite weighty and and, and, and require a lot of cognitive effort. Um, and so we do the at the very at the very least, Bill, as the day wears on, our decision making becomes is different, right? So um, this this impacts judges. This impacts physicians. <laughs> this impacts teachers. You know, on and on and on. And they've, and they've done research to demonstrate that. So, um, you know, we do have you know decision fatigue that that has an impact on. And and that's one of the reasons that I talk again talk about this in the book. You want to think about how you structure your day for the kind uh, the kind of work that you do. Look, this is not going to be a surprise to people. They probably other people have heard that. You've got to find that when you have a tough task or a, a task that requires a lot of creativity. You've got to find that sweet spot for you. And for some people, that's really early in the morning. That's the way I am. I like to work, do my creative stuff first. And other people might find it late a.m. But, but do remember that there is this, this decision fatigue that can in, impact you know, how, how, you, how you deal with issues. The other thing I didn't think about while looking at this, and, and I think that we do it, and I don't think we do it to sabotage ourselves, but the later in the day it gets, especially those that um, use food as a uh, stress reliever, the more stress they receive in the day, then they start eating. And it's always snack food or junk food that gives them that, that makes them feel good. And if it would happen earlier in the day, they would probably make better decisions, correct? Um, there is some evidence to back up exactly what you've said. You know, we have to be careful, you know, to, not to overgeneralize because everyone, you know, I, I always, I, I, in one of my previous books, I, I really, you know, tackled this topic in, in some depth. And, and I would say that the best diet is the diet that works for you, okay. right? The diet that is healthy, that is sustainable, and that works for you. There really is no magic, magic diet, but, you know, again, being careful not to overgeneralize, you know, there is you know, the evidence that, you know, if people get more tired and uh, they have a tendency to, to eat more junk food. Uh, and that's one reason why individuals that are night owls, you know, that is correlated with um, other bad health uh, lifestyle habits, okay. like eating junk food. Doesn't apply to everyone, right? You know, have to correlation causation, but that correlation certainly is there. And, and as you point out, um, that's 
part of the speculation is is fatigue. And it's also some speculation why people, they don't sleep as well. I'm sure you've heard this, too, that there's a correlation. Again, got to be careful not to overinterpret the data, correlation, causation. But it's there's a correlation also between not sleeping well, right, and, you know, having you know, being tired, having a bad night's sleep, uh, and, and eating habits. Um, so you're right. It's all tied together. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, too, is, and, and it never crossed my mind until this past week, I guess it is, and the whole idea about stock analysts being able to perform at different times of the day better with everything that happened with GameStop over this last week. Like, did they see this happening? Was it? Did it happen later in the day? Did it happen in the morning? How did it happen that it, this whole idea just took the country by storm? by buying these stocks, and the stock analysts never saw it coming. And I think it's yeah, interesting it, that you touch on that, too. Yeah, it, it is It is incredible. It, and, and as you can imagine, this is the kind of research you can do because you have a pretty big data set, right? People making decisions about stocks, and you can absolutely, you know, see, see patterns. You know, it's the same with uh, people who are on committees and they're making decisions about hiring people. They're making decisions about what grants to... Right. Uh, to, to give out, we are, the timing of, makes all the difference in the world. Did you have, did you eat? Are you sleepy? Is, are you about to take a lunch break? And you know what I find interesting is it just adds to the arbitrariness of, of the decision, right? And, and uh, people, you know, put in these applications or they put in, uh, are they making a determination about what stock to buy? And you have these kind of arbitrary factors that, that weigh much more than many people may realize. So, if if you would make a bad decision because you're not thinking about it, it happens. Is there a way that you can counteract that decision or do you just move on and hopefully that eventually that that decision doesn't affect your outcome? Well, that's that's a really interesting question in ways that maybe you don't, you don't realize. One of the things that we all do is we want to be decisionally consistent. So what we sometimes do um, is we make a decision um, because it fits our personal brand, for example, or because we think it's, it's, it's decisionally consistent with a past decision that we made. Let me give you an example. So let's say you, for some reason you decide you're only going to eat organic food, and, and then avoiding GMO seems consistent with that decision. And so then what you do is you reverse engineer a justification for coming to that decision. Okay. Um, even though, even though, if you did sort of a dispassionate um, evidence analysis of that decision, you may not have come to the same decision. But you want to be decisionally consistent, and you want to make decisions that fit your personal brand, your, so your personal identity, not only how you view yourself, but how you want others to view you. And we all do this. It sounds like I'm pointing fingers. I'm not. <laughs> we all do it. You know, I joke about, you know, how I've done it in the past and, um, and some of the writing I've done. But, but that kind of decision consistency uh, can have a real impact on the decisions we make throughout the day. So the one question I have to ask you before we end this this evening, did you take your 14-year-old son skydiving? Uh, I absolutely did. I don't know if you've ever gone ski, <laughs> skydiving. Uh, a couple things. First of all, holy cow, it is an intense experience. <laughs> Way more terrifying than I anticipated. My 14-year-old 
absolutely loved it. Uh, and when I find, when I jumped out the window, so so did I. But I can tell you, it's not like. Have you ever done it? No, I haven't. Because it, it, it's it's not like on. I'm sure many of your listeners have done it. It's not like on TV, you know. Like so, my son went first and was like, "Oh my god, what have I done?" Yeah. Because I'll tell you, they drop and in an instant. He's like a pin, right? It's not like on TV where you catch up to him. He's like gone. Uh, and then you know you jump. It's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredible experience. Uh, I loved it. So with that that's interesting that you said your son loves it because I imagine the older we get, the less risk we take. And in the teenage years and the, the early twenties, that's when we're going to take more risks in our lives. Uh, absolutely, that's absolutely uh, correct. And, and the other funny thing is, is one of the reasons I thought Scott Darwin was such a great example is I, I did kind of get sort of lightly scolded by my friends and, and other parents for doing this. And and it's interesting because, you know, some of these parents, their kids played hockey. Right. Right. Uh, some of the, my, because, uh, you know, I'm in Canada, that's <laughs> every kid plays hockey. Uh, my son is a serious gymnast. Uh, both of those activities, order of magnitude more dangerous than skydiving. Wow. Right. Uh, but no one scolds me for having my son in gym, gymnastics. And I'm not saying those decisions are bad. On the, you know, on the contrary, I'm just trying to say how, you know, our perceptions of risk um, are influenced by a whole bunch of things that, that we don't realize. And what I think is interesting, you talk about skydiving, which is usually a one-time event, but when the kids reach their, their mid to late teens, we give them a vehicle to drive. Yeah. yeah. And they do well, that day the in and day out for thing, most cases. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. It's one of the most, you know, single most dangerous things that humans do. Um, I, you know, driving to the place where we did went skydiving is probably a thousand times more dangerous than the sky. I'll give you another example. Another example that's really powerful if we have time here. Yeah, we do. Uh, in the book, in the book, I, I talk about letting your kid walk to school, and um, as you probably know, it's the same not only in in Canada, the United States, but really around the world. Fewer and fewer parents are letting their yes. kids walk to school. And research tells us, and this is true, it's interesting, because this is true in Scandinavia, you know, I refer to Scandinavian research, and it's in Europe, and all over. The, the number one reason, uh, if you believe the research, uh, is stranger danger. You know, right. Parents are worried their kid is, some horrific thing can happen to their kid. Even though, in most neighborhoods, you know, I want to be careful, again, not to overgeneralize, but in most danger, uh, uh, neighborhoods, it is so vanishingly, rare that those occurrences happen, um, that you can almost categorize it as not going to happen. But, but the, we think it's, it's, it, it's going to happen because when it does happen, it's a huge story. It's headline news, right? So our availability bias kicks in. It's incredibly scary. We can't think of a worse thing that could ever happen to our kids. We're, we're surrounded by TV shows, CSI, Criminal Minds, that make it seem like there's predators absolutely Everywhere, even though crime rates are like you know, low, you know lower than them all have ever been. On the other side of the equation, walking to school, you get exercise, mm-hmm. you, you you experience independence, you have these you know moments of of, of socializing right with your your friends, and, and maybe it's just a quiet time for your kid during an otherwise busy busy day, right? So you have these sort of tangible benefits, but it's hard for us to weigh those kind of more amorphous benefits versus this horrific fear 
and therefore we err on the side of driving. And then what happens is it becomes a social norm. You get this cohort effect happening, and then all of a sudden there's more traffic in front of the school, and then it does that becomes a concern. You have this horrible cycle happening. So that's a really good example of how how you know sometimes our intention doing something good for our kid doesn't match um, what the evidence actually says around the decision that we make. And by and I, I emphasize, I've got four kids, so I totally get this. I'm not pointing fingers at all. It's rather a very interesting and complex social phenomenon. Because I know, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and then went to college and start of life. Um, but when we were kids in the early 70s, even in the, in the late 70s, you would leave the house and be gone the whole day. And when you were told to come back when the lights came on, or your friends were going into their homes because you were out all day. Now, me being a parent, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and we live in a community, like you said, we have a convenience store and this and that. I actually hold my breath when she walks a block and a half to the convenience store because I'm worried about something happening. But again, like you said, the odds of it happening are slim and none. It's slim, slim to none, and, you know, I... I, and I was like you growing up, you know, I, I would, and I'm talking young, you know, young, oh, yeah. I would head out the door. My mom, I remember my mom give me a quarter. I'd go to the Rawlinson store, which was like blocks and blocks away, you know, like, like a long walk by myself and I'd get candy. Um, and, and the interesting thing is the crime rate then, so this would have been like you, you know, seventies, way worse yeah. than now. Like, <laughs> Way worse, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, and the traffic rules were, you know, uh, worse than you know, on and on and on. Um, yeah, it's it, it, incredible, and and not pointing fingers. I totally get it. I totally get it. You know, being a parent and growing up in this environment with these expectations, I totally get it. But it really does demonstrate, just more as a as an example of how you know our intentions uh, and the decisions we make are shaped by interesting social forces, but also don't really map necessarily what the, what the evidence says. And of course, there's different circumstances and people maybe drive for a whole bunch of different reasons. Right. But, but just looking at this globally, it is an interesting social phenomenon. Well, Tim, it's hard to believe we're almost out of time, but I could go on forever um, because what you're talking about interests me a lot. And I think if anybody picks up the book, they'll feel the same way. And again, it's your day, your way, the fact and fiction behind your daily decisions. Is there anything you want to tell my audience before I let you go tonight? One thing I'll say is, you know what, you can, most, mostly you can ignore all that noise in the chaotic information environment and, and focus on those evidence-informed basics. And that'll take you a long way. Um, I find it kind of, hopefully people will find that, that kind of liberating. And um, with your with your book now, the other thing is too, and I and I asked you this before the program, but the book is actually out in multiple titles, correct? Um, in the states, it's your day, your way, and then um, it's relaxed. Damn it, <laughs> a user guide to the age of anxiety, which is the same book, different title, right? That's right. Every country decided to emphasize something slightly different so i think i think the in the u.s they you know they think they needed a little bit of good news well (laughs) i wonder why so let's 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 spin the positive right bill i i still like the cover relax damn it that would have jumped up to me immediately but 
That's funny. Um, again, Timothy, thank you very much. I will share the uh, where the um, my listeners can buy the book at, and it's available at Amazon and all the other bookstores that you can find online. And again, thank you, Tim, very much for joining me this evening, and you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks very much, Bill. Really enjoyed it. Thank you Bye-bye. very much. Bye-bye. Tim Caulfield. Uh, the name of the book is Your Day, Your Way, The Fact and fiction behind your daily decisions. Again, great book. And when a book comes out and the first line is, you're going to feel pretty bad if your son dies. You're going to feel horrible. When you hear that in your open, <laughs> when you first read the book, you know it's going to be a winner. But again, a very interesting book. And again, it goes through the, your, your daily decisions and how that may affect you and how we make those decisions. And again, 30 minutes um, is not long enough to discuss it, but hopefully we'll have him back on the program again to be able to discuss more about the book. And again, I will put the link in my uh, in, on my website and also on the podcast page for the pro- those of you that download this. And I appreciate you guys listening to the program tonight. And we'll be talking to the author next week, um, Trudy Truitt, here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. You guys have a great night. You guys have a great week. We'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. This has been a Million Dollar Baby production. For more information, go to italknet.com. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.